You're listening to Live with the League, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought to you by the Michigan Municipal League. All right. It looks like everything is a go. I appreciate it. It looks like we're live on Facebook, so I'll get started. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt Bach, Assistant Director of Strategic Communications for the Michigan Municipal League. We have a, a great show today. We have a couple guests on. Uh, we have uh, Matthew or Matt Walker from the Attorney General's Office and Chris Johnson with the Michigan Municipal League. And uh, we have Matt on because we're only allowed for my short-term memory issues only to have Matt's. And it's easy for me to remember since that's my name as well. It's kind of like how, uh, if you ever noticed, whenever Tony Danza was in a, a TV show or anything, they always called him Tony. And, and the the story goes that he couldn't remember any other name, so they just always made his characters Tony. So that's what I should do. I only have Matt's on the show, so I couldn't remember. But anyways, thank you, Matt, for joining us today. I appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. <laughs> so uh, we're having uh, you on to talk about, uh, and Chris Johnson can also chime in anytime he likes, um, about the opioid uh, case settlement. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it's happened kind of over the summer, and or, or I think it was June sometime when the, it was announced, and then the states had to kind of decide what, the, what position they were going to take on it. Tell us a little bit about this uh, settlement and what it could mean for our communities. Sure. So, um, you know, so w- w- what's going on is that, um, that there is, is an opioid uh, drug case settlement that's happening. Um, so if you're not aware, there's a number of opioid uh, cases happening around, uh, around the country, actually. And so this is one of several. Um, you may have heard of some others, uh, like the Purdue Pharmaceutical Bankruptcy and uh, a couple others that are involved in opioid production. But the specific one that we're talking about right now is a settlement with um, the drug distributors and uh, Janssen, also known as Johnson and Johnson. So the drug distributors are Cardinal, McKesson, and Amerisource Virgin. Um, what they do is they distribute drugs across the country and different things. They also, I believe, produce other things um, for medical related uh, um, procedures and stuff like that. So um, the, the opioid drug case settlement is with those four individuals. It's actually two settlements. Um, one is with the distributors and one is with uh, Johnson and Johnson, but they, they're are very, very close mirrors of each other. Um, they, they're very similarly structured. And so they're kind of lumped all together. And it's like a 26, oh, you were going to get there. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. Um, so, so all total, uh, the, the, this, this, the settlement with these four companies would be the second largest nationwide settlement uh, in history. It's a $26 billion nationwide. Um, uh, yeah, that's uh, just behind the tobacco settlement. Yeah, that from like 1998 or something, I think was yeah. the tobacco settlement. So, uh, so what does that mean for Michigan then, um, and, and other states? $26 billion is a lot of money, but when you start spreading it, it over 50 states. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. So, so, so Michigan, along with other states, uh, will receive a, a, an, an allocation of that money. Um, Michigan specifically um, could, 
could see up to approximately $800 million um, over the course of 18 years, the settlements over, over 18 years. So, and then how is the Attorney General's office involved? I did see Attorney General Nestle did, I guess, opt in to receiving this and some states have yet not yet decided to do that. Is that how that works? Um, yes. So, so the way that the settlements are structured is they're, they're based on, on participation. And so um, the, the settlement documents came out in, in late July and states were given um, a certain time period to sign on to the settlement. Michigan is one of the states that signed on. Um, there were a, a couple states that didn't, but for the most part, um, most of them did sign on. Um, and uh, as uh, the settlement goes, we're now into a different sort of phase of um, gathering participation. And so, at any point in time, so, so when the state sign-on period was active, um, if enough states didn't sign on, the defendants or the, the distributors and J&J &J could have said, okay, well, there's not enough people, we're, we're not going to do the settlement anymore. And it's sort of the same thing right now with um, participating or, or local subdivisions. If there's not enough local subdivisions, um, that they could say, Okay, we're we're just we're not we're not going to continue with the settlement. There's not enough participation, so um, it's all participation based. But um, for the state portion of things, enough states signed on, and um, the the settlement continued into the 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 local subdivision phase. So, the AG's role in all of this is um, as a representative of the state of Michigan. So we represent the state as far as um, in, in the settlement and in um, any sort of litigation with the state. Okay, so so what specifically, so this 800 million coming to Michigan, how will this, will it eventually, eventually trickle down to the municipalities or the communities or how, how will that work? And then we did have a question related to that. Um, if a municipality receives the funds, are there, are there restricted to any particular uses for it? Sure. So let me get to your, to answer your question, then I can answer that, that second question as well. So um, the way that this, that this works is that um, subdivisions have an opportunity to participate in the settlement and they can um, sign on to the participation um, agreement. Um, if, so there, there are certain subdivisions that can sign on per the settlement documents. Um, the settlement restricts uh, local subdivisions, the, the direct participation of local subdivisions to those who were previously litigating already, or those who have a population um, as of the 2019 census estimate of 10,000 people or greater. And so, um, if you go to michigan.gov slash AG opioids, uh, you can see the settlement documents and there is an exhibit in the distributor settlement agreement, it's exhibit G. And those are the subdivisions who are directly eligible to participate. So 
if you were among one of those subdivisions, you would have received a notice um, from, uh, it, it would have had the AG's letterhead on it and it would have been about four, uh, four pages long and there is a, a number on it, it's a DocuSign number. And uh, I would encourage you to, to register with, with the link there that's on the notice and um, that will ensure that it, any participation or, or any other subsequent documents that are put out would come would come to your uh, to come to your subdivision. Um, so that would be the 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 next thing. As far as, so as far as um, money flowing down to municipalities, yes, there would be um, direct payments to those subdivisions who participate um, that are listed in Exhibit G. Um, other subdivisions who wouldn't fall within that would receive indirect, uh, and would, you know, receive indirect benefits from, um, opioid related, uh, let's say infrastructure and other things that are going on, um, around the state as a result of those dollars. So anything that would be, um, related to, to spending in association with the, with the settlement money. Okay, so if, if a community doesn't know for sure if they were, got one of these lists, is there, is there a way on the website or something they can look up to see which communities are, are in line to, to get some of the funding? Or is there a way yeah. to figure that out? Yeah, the, so, so probably, uh, honestly, the, the, the easiest way for them might be um, to go to that link that, um, um, someone put up, I think, in the chat there. In the chat. Or alternatively, they can just email uh, us. It's ag-opioidlitigation at michigan.gov. Okay. Um, and I could put that in the chat as well. And if you have any questions about um, whether or not your subdivision is on uh, that Exhibit G or not, I can uh, help answer that for you. Okay. And then we do have another related question. Uh, who would request the funds and what is the trail to take to get people in our, to get it to the people in our community? Kind of speaks to that other question too, as far as what's, what's the restricted uses of it. Sure, sure. So I wanna make sure that I, that I answer that question. So, um, so the answer to the question about the, the restriction of funds, it, it, they are restricted to um, certain uses um, specifically they're, they're restricted really to, to opioid remediation. And that is a term that is, um, defined in the settlement, but reality is that, you know, the, the settlement restricts the use of, uh, settlement funds to, uh, 70% of it has to be used for future opioid remediation. So really the intent is that um, it would be something to use going forward to help local governments in uh, abating the opioid epidemic as from, from now forward. Um, well, that probably are, means like education and things like that, awareness, you know, that type of thing, I would guess. Yeah. So there's, uh, there's actually in the, in the settlement documents, I, I mentioned exhibit G, there's another exhibit. It's, it's a really <laughs> long document as you yeah, can probably imagine. 
um, it's it's exhibit E uh, okay. is is some guidance on what are uses of um, some of the opioid settlement dollars. Um, it, it's intended to be guidance. Um, the the opioid remediation language is is broader than what is possibly listed there, but um, it's a really good document as far as what what guidance are. Uh, so that's Exhibit E of the distributor settlement. And going back to that other question, um, what is the trail to take to get it to the people in our community? It's kind of a related question a little bit, but um, you know, if so a community gets the money, then you know, then what? I guess is the question. <laughs> sure. So, um, well, so I guess let me let me go back just a little bit and 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 explain um, that. So the way that this is is likely to work is that, so, so I, I mentioned already that the settlement is over a period of time, right? right? So, so that means that annually, um, the, the companies will pay a certain amount of money on an annual basis. Now, the, the J&J or the, the, the Janssen settlement um, pays the, the front-ended more so than it does on the back end. But the distributor settlement is really sort of equal payments over the course of that 18 year time period. 18 years, yeah. Yeah, so, so um, it's important to remember that, 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 um, that the payments are annual and those things um, would get split on that, on that basis. So as far as each individual subdivision goes, um, the, the settlement agreements have the have or, or allow for the ability of a state subdivision agreement, which uh, is in the process of being negotiated with the, the currently litigating subdivisions. And um, you know, once, once that is completed, there would be, uh, so there will be like a participation agreement that individual subdivisions would need to sign on to. And they would, uh, once the state subdivision agreement is completed, they would see that at the same time. So that would all kind of go out as like a, a, as a, as a package. And so um, once those payments come in, there is a, uh, an, an escrow agent or a, a, basically a company that splits all the money at a, at a nationwide level. And then there may also be one at the Michigan level. We're not entirely sure quite yet um, that would, divide that money and send it out to those uh, subdivisions in this and the state as per what the settlement arrangement is and and any sort of state subdivision agreement okay and when do you sense? think yeah I, th I think it does uh, chris and feel free to chime in if you have any questions as well um what when do you think they could start seeing these the first payments to do you have any idea on that so the the first um i think the first payment it, so long as all of uh, all of the the settlement continues forward, um, would likely be in uh, April, March, or April of next year. Okay. Um, but you know, it's important to remember that all of those things are based on participation, mm. and so um, you know what what's important is that subdivisions participate, um, not just locally here in Michigan, but, but nationwide. 
because the way that the, the structure is of the settlement is that there's a certain amount that's just a base payment and then everything else is an incentive payment. I um, see. And so the more people who sign on, the, the larger the amount is. There's okay. still a possibility that the matter might not settle. Could you explain what would happen in that event? Yeah, um, no, you're right. There is still a chance that it, the, the matter may not settle. Um, and um, the, the, the distributors and, and Johnson & Johnson could, could call it off um, really after January 2nd is the, is the last um, date for subdivision participation. And so um, in the event that that would happen, we would likely go back to a situation where um, there would be litigation against those companies and we would have to try to litigate to get any um, money or funding for opioid related matters. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate uh, your time joining us. It was very uh, important to have someone from the AG's office on to talk about this issue. So we appreciate your willingness to come on and talk to our members. Um, and see, I think I have, I think that's all the questions I had for you. Anything else? I had one more. Sure, go ahead. Um, Matt, could you explain um, to our group um, what happens if they don't participate and the possibility that they might be excluded from any uh, potential settlement? Sure. So, um, you know, per the per the settlement documents, um, subdivisions that don't participate aren't eligible to receive direct payments. So. If you're listed on Exhibit G and decide to not participate, um, you just you wouldn't you wouldn't be eligible to receive any any direct payments as a result of the settlement. Um, and so, you know, going further down the line, you know, in the event that um, you know when anyone's claims were released or something like that, if the the legislature um, could could say something to the effect of, as they have done in other states, that you know there's no claims available after a certain date or something like that. That those claims might be extinguished, um, and and then they wouldn't be able to to really litigate either. Um, so, reality the reality is I think the the best way to to do this is to participate in the settlement. Um, but as I said, you know. I'll, all the states across the country are, are sort of in the same boat and dealing with um, you know, how to structure this and what to do. Um, a number of states have already sort of passed legislation like that. Um, we haven't, I don't, and I don't know that we will. Um, I don't know that claims will be released at all or anything like that, but um, that's sort of where it would stand. Um, if that answers your question. Yes, it does. And the, uh, there were a couple of other questions in the chat I'd like to address. Sure. Um, we talk about political subdivisions. Uh, that would be any city, village, township, charter township in the state of Michigan, as well as all 83 Michigan counties. So between all of them, we have probably around, well, well over 1,700 local units of government in the state of Michigan. And um, you can find out whether your community is 
in or out of that 10,000 above in exhibit G on the settlement document. So right. Melanie, go to exhibit G, you'll find out whether or not your community is on that list. If not, you can uh, still potentially receive services through a county um, that would be set up to uh, handle opioid related uh, remediation as well. Uh, that's very helpful. So basically a subdivision itself is, is a local unit of government. Is that just another word for it? Yes. Okay. All right. That comes up those two questions. I appreciate you tackling that, Chris. Anything else for Matt? For Matt? See a, a question here from Joe Snyder um, about accounting and reporting. Oh, okay. Um, Joe, I, I do think that um, I don't know about special accounting. Um, I suppose possibly, I guess it depends on what you mean by that, but I think he just means you have to do extra accounting on top of your normal accounting, probably. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that re reporting may be required, I think that's a, that's a likelihood. Um, I, I would say that it, it's likely that reporting would be required for these funds. Um, at, at the very least, there is an aspect of reporting in the settlement documents that would require um, reporting to the national settlement agent, certain types of expenditures. It's very limited, but um, it also might be a larger like reporting as far as um, you know, local transparency and stuff like that goes too. Okay, well, good. I appreciate that. All right, well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, we do have a couple other topics we got to, uh, go on to, but I uh, appreciate your time very much. And he did uh, provide an email. So any of the members have questions, uh, we posted that email in the chat. Feel free to use that to reach out to the AG's office if you have questions, or I'm sure they'll be happy to help. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. So we're going to move on to our next uh, uh, drug-related topic today. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the proposed uh, Cannabis Safety Act. Um, and we'll bring uh, Jennifer Rigtrink from the league and also could join uh, Chris Johnson. And um, Matt, if you're all set, you can uh, turn off your camera. And, but if you're welcome, you're welcome to stay on the show as well and answer any if any more questions come in for you, it's up to you. Um, so, uh, so Chris and Jen, thank you for joining us. Um, uh, we did uh, issue a statement along with the Townships Association in support of the Cannabis Safety Act. So the league is on the record of supporting this, but I do know just from seeing the coverage, there were a lot of people that didn't support this. So Jed, I'll start with you. Just kind of explain what this uh, Cannabis Safety Act is and why the league is uh, currently backing it. Thanks, Matt. So the Cannabis Safety Act um, is really a three bill package. There's, there's two or three other bills um, that are included as well, but this, the three main bills are uh, House Bill 5300, 5301, and 5302. Um, and these bills are attempting to uh, amend the caregiver, the marijuana caregiver patient medical marijuana um, model. Um, it really gets, um, is those caregivers who are servicing more than one patient into the regulated uh, marijuana system. 
um, so that their product is tested um, just like all the other marijuana product. Um, for local municipalities, the reason that the league um, got involved is because this is also um, an attempt to get um, larger grows when it comes to caregiver um, growth out of the residential neighborhoods. Um, the 5301 um, creates a specialty medical growers license. So a caregiver would be defined as a one patient, um, a, a caregiver plus one patient um, would be able to proceed in their, their primary residence. Um, if you have more than one patient, up to five, um, you would be required to get a specialty um, medical growers license. Um, and these would be permitted in ag um, and industrial, unless a community wants to allow it in residential. Um, communities would have the ability. The other thing that um, local government uh, uh, is very supportive of is all of the caregivers and specialty medical growers licenses would be registered with the marijuana regulatory agency and local units of government would have access to know um, where those addresses are. So being able to, if, you know, something comes up and there's um, it's a, some kind of suspected uh, illegal activity, uh, locals, local police would be able to know if somebody is a registered caregiver or registered with a specialty medical growers license. Okay. Um, and Jen, is this, does this uh, case have anything, any impact on, or not case, this um, proposed bills have any impact on the, the amount of uh, revenue or income that the community get by allowing marijuana businesses in their communities, or is that a totally separate issue? Nope, that's a separate issue because uh, when the adult use um, initiative was passed, the excise tax on medical marijuana went away. Um, I mean, if we think about when the caregivers, the, the original um, Medical Marijuana Act was passed, um, let's remember initiatives are not written by experts in the uh, industry and policy drafters. It's usually written by um, those with interest. And there's quite a gray area in the caregivers uh, in the, the original um, 2008 Act that allows for caregivers to have overages. Um, they're growing more marijuana than one patient would need. And those um, overages were being sold once we had adult use, um, actually when the 2016 medical marijuana um, the MMSLA, Medical Marijuana Facilities Licensing Act. I think I got that right. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, when that came forward um, to get the system up and going, caregivers were being able to sell their overages to uh, dispensaries. And uh, we have a statistic that 93% of um, product recalls during that time, 2018 to 2019, um, were actually with caregiver um, caregiver products. So this is really just a safety issue, getting everyone into the same system, kind of the transparency um, and, and making sure that the product that's out there being used as medicine is, is regulated just like all other medicines um, and tested and packaged correctly. 
Yeah, and it does sound it does sound pretty straightforward. But why there was there such large opposition? And without, I know we were on the other side, but just kind of quickly, can you summarize some of their concerns? Yeah, so I um, would summarize that a little differently. There was definitely um, pushback of some opposition um, from one group. Um, I think that the the group is very loud, but it doesn't encompass all. Uh, caregivers group. Um, there was a caregiver association that was formed, you know, a week before the bills were in committee um, that came forward and, and talked about all their members, but it, it was something that's not been longstanding. It was just put together for opposition to the legislation. Um, the bills had a um, hearing in House uh, Reg Reform Committee. Uh, we're going to be going on two weeks here. Um, and are anticipated to have another hearing um, next week. Uh, and so I think some of the pushback, Matt, is, uh, you know, we've heard, while this isn't through the exact lens that, you know, the league and local government is looking through, some of the opposition has been to, um, that this is going to um, restrict patients in getting their medicine, um, that this is going to, uh, delete jobs, um, it's going to kill jobs. And so we actually have, if anyone is interested in some talking points um, to counter those, um, I have some great statistics and stuff. But again, that's more on the industry side of things versus the, the local government lens. And all the legislators that I've been talking to, um, they're very supportive of um, getting, trying to get this out of the neighborhoods and in, in having more transparency in the system. And of course, everyone wants to make sure whatever product is going out is safe um, and, and doesn't have you know, things in it like mold or other um, chemicals and things that shouldn't be in there. Okay, now, I do want to talk about the petitions that are, are many local ballots coming up in November. But before I get to that, there is a question that Chris or Jen, um, is there information on municipalities that have been sued in regards to their ordinance on dispensaries and the outcome? Are, are there any cases out there that we're following the, on this issue? There's several cases out there on that issue. Um, most of them are now revolving around the adult use statute. Um, and quite frankly, they're going um, different ways as they work their way up to the Court of Appeals. There's no uh, formal um, Court of Appeals decision on a number of the issues, especially as it related to the adult use statute. Something as simple as uh, X number of plants is that, does that mean X number of plants per residence or X number of plants per uh, persons that are 21 years or older. Um, that's a fairly simple concept, but it's not defined at all in the act. So as it's, it's very frustrating for municipal attorneys right now because there's no definitive answer and it could go either way in litigation. So there's just not a good roadmap for municipal attorneys to advise their clients on. Okay. Um, and we go ahead, Jen. I was gonna say, I. Funny that we're doing and talking about this right now. I just got an email um, because one of the major um, uh, points being taken by the other side in opposition is that um, you know that 
the caregivers are not going to be able to service their patients. Um, but we just got some numbers from the Marijuana Regulatory Agency that says over 12,000 caregivers only have one patient. And that's the largest number in the system. Mm. The next closest is 4,800 have two patients. And, and those, neither one of those would be impacted. It, this. Right. <laughs> so, in, you know, going in going down. So, um, right. If you have one patient, you would still be a caregiver and be fine. If, if, if you have more than one patient, you would still be fine. You would just have to get the specialty medical growers license and have permission to remain in a residential area or uh, move in, in a lot of communities. Caregivers have, have already come together and are in a common um, property. It, some are in residential and they're causing huge issues, but some are out in a commercial or um, industrial ag uh, district. That would still be allowed. They'd have to have each caregiver, each specialty medical grower would have to have their own space within that lock space. You know, the same safety requirements um, and inspection requirements um, that are on uh, medical from the MMFLA and the adult use recreational um, systems would apply. Okay. Now we did get another question. I think it kind of goes into the next issue I want to talk about, which was the petitions that are on the ballots. And the question specifically is, can you tell us about marijuana advocacy groups that were calling for referendum votes if a community opts out? Uh, Chris, if you could talk a little bit about what this petition issue is and if this question kind of relates to that. Well, there's a, a couple of different uh, issues out there with respect to petitions. First is that the recreational um, adult use statute that was passed by the voters gives a referendum option to anybody to regulate the number of licenses. And again, this is another one of those questions that's not answered in the statute. Does it mean if you grant a license, you have to grant all of the licenses or you can grant some of the licenses? Mm -hmm. So it created the ability for a local person in the community to get 5% of the um, folks that voted in the last gubernatorial election to put it on the ballot to set the number of licenses in a community. So that's one of the reasons why the league at the very beginning after this statute passed was go out and have a discussion with the community because if you're so far off of where your community is, somebody's gonna get a referendum going and you're gonna have an election and you're gonna have to debate the merits during the election. And <laughs> as we'll have that conversation before you get the election. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the kinds of referendums that we're talking about. And that often gets confused with something we are just seeing brand new uh, in the last few months. And that was an, a desire to um, petition the home rule cities and home rule villages, this only applies to them, to amend their charters to allow medical marijuana. And what's interesting is the Medical Marijuana Facilities Citing Act um, does not uh, or grants to the local municipality the power to decide whether or not they're going to have medical marijuana facilities in their um, uh, community or not. What's interesting about all of the uh, petitions that we saw that were being filed, they're not exactly word for word, but very similar, 
they're looking at creating new departments within the city or village government and actually restructuring the government. Mm. So when we saw the first couple of petitions come in, uh, the Michigan Association of Municipal Attorneys became fairly active on this on their listserv and actually formed a separate subcommittee of communities that were facing these particular um, petitions. And we also involved the Attorney General's office by forwarding some of those petitions to the AG's office. At least one community formally um, submitted the uh, petition to the AG's office through the governor's office and the procedure found, you know, when you're amending a charter and a very definitive opinion came from uh, the attorney general's office, which said this is an improper way of handling uh, major revisions to a city or village's charter. Um, and that's been very successful. To my knowledge, all of the uh, communities that are out there faced with these petitions had one of two situations where the petitions were denied and upheld by the circuit court, or um, in one case or two cases, they didn't have municipal elections coming up this November. They're, they're on odd numbered years rather than even, or excuse me, even numbered years rather than odd numbered years. Right. So for the most part, uh, from what we've seen, um, uh, those kinds of petitions have not been successful. Um, and the possibility exists that we might be able to tweak some uh, of the legislation to uh, prevent further attempts to do major rewrites of a charter just to address one specific issue that's um, directly contrary to state law. Sure, and we're, and we're obviously not opposed to petitions in general. If people want to petition their community, get something on the ballot. But it's just like you said, it's, it's this is how it could impact the charter and impact things that they maybe didn't even think of doing it. Yeah, it's one thing to say, can I have some medical marijuana facilities in my community? That's, that's flat out one thing. But the methodology that these groups were doing was to essentially re- um, rewrite the way that government in the local community was going to function, what mm -hmm. a city administrator could or could not do, creating nice. a whole new department, for example, in many situations. So you were going far beyond just changing or tweaking one little aspect of the charter. Um, you were actually violating state law by doing the charter the way it's um, being proposed. Okay. Go ahead, well, and Chris, can you talk just a little bit too? I mean, in the whole petition, um, getting the language approved, uh, municipalities need to be sending that to the attorney general's office, correct? Because they get to weigh in if it goes on the ballot or not. Correct. And the process is very specific in terms of a major rewrite of a, uh, a charter should be done by way of a charter commission. Uh, not it's you know if you have like one thing you want to change in your charter you know the the community can do that after they send it off to the uh, governor's office and the governor always refers it to the attorney general um, so I, sometimes I say the attorney general's office I'm also meaning it goes through the governor's office and the governor has to make a decision based on what the attorney general is recommending 
if you're doing these major rewrites of a, a community's charter, though, you, you need to do it through a charter uh, commission revision, as opposed to just singling out one or two little sections of a charter. Okay. So, Chris, or Matt, can I ask one more question? Yeah, for so sure. Community in, in that position, should they reply to a position or to a petition that they have to create a, a charter commission? Um, or do they send it to the governor's office first and, and, and then be able to turn over whatever official response they get um, from that? Which, which path should they go? I recommend strongly advising the governor's office who will you know, involve the attorney general on those things. Um, and again, one community formally did that um, in this particular situation. And the AG's opinion was very uh, strong for the local unit of government in that case. Okay, good. And just so you know, the, that group of municipal attorneys is still following the issue uh, and will be uh, potentially making recommendations on uh, uh, legislation as well. How, yeah, how we have been looking. Oh, go ahead, sorry, Jane. Matt. I was just going to say we have been looking at this situation from many angles and how we can best help with it. So whether it's you know talking to the marijuana regulatory agency, whether uh, it's the conversations Chris has been having um, through the AG's office, or we've also been looking at language. Um, you know, do we get a bill introduced or bills introduced that amend either the Home Rule Cities and or the Home Rule Villages Act? to um, straighten this out, but you know, there are multiple uh, angles that we are coming at this issue, trying to see how we can help our members who are facing it and help our other members avoid from having to face it going forward. Okay. How widespread, like this November, how are these ballot issues? Are we seeing a lot of them in our communities? Do we have any idea? I think there were attempts in about eight communities throughout oh. the state. Okay. All right. Well, good. Well, thank you, Chris and Jen. I appreciate you guys talking about this. Uh, <clears throat> any other points you want to uh, mention before we move on? Yeah, Chris, if you could talk about the, you know, just the legal, the league and the legal defense fund and, and how um, that would interact with this issue going forward or not, or yeah, if was... our members are interested in looking at the legal defense fund, what it is. Well, first of all, the legal defense fund is not a pile of cash. That's going to be used by individual members to pay their own legal fees on a particular matter. Okay. Um, get that out of the way. <laughs> get that out of the way and, and make sure there's a clear understanding of it. The Legal Defense Fund usually, not always, but usually looks at issues that are more um, statewide in application. And one of the things that's important to remember is if it affects a member specifically, that's one thing, but if it affects a member in such a way as to create bad law in a case, the Legal Defense Fund will respond. Um, there's a process and it's found at the Michigan Association of Municipal Attorneys uh, website to go through uh, making a uh, request for assistance. And what that assistance is, is we'll find a very qualified municipal attorney to prepare a brief in either the Court of Appeals or sometimes the Supreme Court, um, which really advocates a position for local units of government, um, the city and village side, rather than 
um, whoever's bringing up the other kind of uh, situation. For example, recently there was a uh, case in the Upper Peninsula, uh, Upco versus the village of Lantz, and a uh, company wanted to extend their franchise agreement and this village did not want to extend it. The uh, Court of Appeals had the case, the Legal Defense Fund uh, filed a brief in that case and actually was sort of impactful in terms of having the court look at the issue from the government side rather than from the uh, company that wanted to provide electric service in the uh, village. So those are the kinds of cases that the Legal Defense Fund handles. It's an, you know, a specific way of dealing with um, additional thought with uh, attorneys that are well-qualified in the particular area. Um, so, and those are usually uh, folks that are well-respected re by the courts themselves in terms of inviting uh, briefs from the MML and from the Michigan Townships Association, for example. Um, so we, we get a lot of uh, good mileage out of the fact that we're presenting a municipal perspective uh, rather than just funding all of the trial court issues uh, that go on with something like that. And like you said, it's often precedents and in cases that have like a statewide impact that we want to get involved with it. Correct. Yep. An adverse ruling in, in one case could affect a lot of governments and um, based on either practices or procedures or interpretations of state law. So that's why the LDF is there. Okay. And one person asked if there's a website or something for the Legal Defense Fund. Um, I, I know we do take, uh, communities have to sign up for it. It's, a, it's an, an additional service that we provide. Um, is there a way they can learn more about it? Uh, yes, they um, actually it's on the uh, Michigan Association of Municipal Attorneys uh, website. And I'll, I can't, uh, don't have that handy at the moment. Okay, but we'll put we'll that later on. Okay, great. Um, another question, uh, I think for you, Jen, um, how soon will these bills be going through committee? I think you're talking about the, the, the ones that you talked about. Yep, so they've already had um, one hearing of testimony um, and we expect them back in committee next week um, okay. and, um, and hopefully move out of committee next week. Okay, all right. And Jen did post a link to Mama online and the uh, website as well. Um, another question, uh, is there a place or website, I think it's regarding the petitions, where we can obtain this information? We are facing these issues, I'm assuming in our community. Is there, is there a place they could get more information about it? I would think one of the best uh, sources of information now, uh, the group of municipal attorneys that's um, heading uh, the effort up on behalf of the attorneys is an attorney by the name of Nick Kershio from the Kershio Law Group. Um, again, we'll try and get you uh, his email address and you can get further information from him. He's kind of tracking um, the issue right now for Mama. Okay. Okay, great. And Chris, I, I think you probably insinuated this, but just uh, folks, um, you know, we don't we do get municipal attorneys that turn um, tune in to Live with the League, um, but you know our other members. And I mean, 
it may be so obvious it's overlooked, but you definitely should be talking to your municipal attorney about this if your community is facing this. Absolutely. Start with your city or village attorney on that. Okay, good. Well, thank you, uh, Chris, for explaining that uh, and everything. Jen, I do have another topic for you yet. Just want to give our, our viewers a quick update on the short-term rental issue. I know that's something uh, Chris has been following as well, but uh, there's some uh, a couple of bills out there, uh, so maybe some bills coming. Could you talk us about what the latest on this is and if our members should be doing anything at this point? Yes. Yep. Thanks, Matt. I mean, we can't go too long without talking about short-term rentals. <laughs> right. Um, so <laughs> we are anticipating this week that there are going to be two bills introduced in the House. Um, one will be an amendment to the Zoning Enabling Act um, that is creating a definition of what a qualified short-term rental is. Uh, this is an attempt to distinguish the difference between uh, a commercial use of a short-term vacation rental that is more of the a business um, investment model versus the person that is renting out their property um, a couple times a year, a few times a year when either they're not there or they're trying to help pay for their property taxes. Um, this is a, um, a meet in the middle um, where we local government, restaurant and lodging association, um, really feel that um, uh, there is some give and take. Um, you know, we know our members would like things to stay the way they are. They would like to be able to regulate these however, wherever. Um, but there is a private property rights issue um, for all properties. Um, and so this is a kind of a negotiated um, a meet in the middle that um, the league working with the township association, like I said, restaurant and lodging and a number of other organizations um, are putting forward. The second bill is a short term rental regulation act that would require all short term rentals and platforms to register um, those. So with the state. That way, um, there is a mechanism for enforcement because the platforms will have to report how many nights um, those uh, properties are rented. So you'll know if it's under a threshold or above. It would also um, institute a short-term rental excise tax of 5%. Part of that would go to fund Pure Michigan. The other half would go to the municipality where the short-term rental is located. Um, so, and then there's some basic safety measures in there that, you know, um, would require uh, that you have to have working smoke detectors and you have to have carbon monoxide detector or fire extinguisher, some just basic health and safety parameters um, that was making our uh, lodging industry partners more comfortable in trying to equal, you know, the playing field between uh, traditional lodging um, uh, industry and, you know, your, your short-term rental, uh, vacation rentals that have is just boomed over the, the last um, five, five plus years. Okay. It's great to see those compromised bills out there. Let's hope they get some traction. Uh, where where are the bills stand that we that were opposed? Where are those issues those bills yeah. right? Uh, so those just just so I can clarify to everybody watching, the two bills have not been um, dropped in and introduced yet. We're anticipating that as soon as that happens, we will get a blog up. So um, if you're not subscribe to the Inside 208 blog. You wanna get that so you can get the notification um, and know right away. Um, we'll also have a document that does a comparison between um, this uh, approach 
and the bill, uh, bills map that you're referring to, House Bill 4722 and Senate Bill 446. Um, both of those bills right now sit on the floors of, of their chambers. Uh, Senate Bill 446 is sitting on the Senate floor and House Bill 4722 uh, is sitting on the House floor. Now, 4722 is the one that's had the most action. Um, it's the one that we've had, um, and Matt, you can smile about this, all the fire drills internally about because I'll get a call. It's going up on the board today. Um, you know, this was prior to summer break, and then all of a sudden it was like, no, it's not going on the board. Um, and so that's where you're getting those action alerts from us telling us, <laughs> call now. Yeah, <laughs> Contact yeah. your legislator now. Um, we don't believe uh, that's going to happen this week, but it could. Um, you know, the, they, I would say those supporters of that bill in the House are trying to garner enough uh, yes votes to throw it up on the board. So, again, um, we think the timing of these new bills being proposed um, and introduced is good because uh, it gives people another option. It really allows legislators who uh, think people should have the right to short-term rent on a limited basis. It covers that. But then it still allows municipalities to regulate and balance um, you know, the housing types within those districts um, above and beyond that threshold of days. Uh, so be on the lookout because if House Bill 4722 does get um, does get um, sorry does get um, moving again, we will be pushing um, action alerts out to our members. But it's always good call and touch base with your legislator. Don't always call them when there's a reason to tell them to post something. Maybe just check in with them and bring this up as a topic of information um, and ask them where they're at and discuss why uh, we need them to be supporting local regulations uh, when it comes to short-term vacation rentals and how, what impact this has on housing in your community. And overall, even um, those of our members who are not directly impacted by short-term vacation rentals because you're not a destination place, just the overall precedent this uh, sets going forward for any type of industry or special interest to come in and ask for a very one-sided viewpoint on something. They can point to this and say, well, you did it for, you know, this group with short-term rentals. Why can't you do it for me? So this is something we need all of our members to care about, not just those that are dealing uh, with uh, influx of short-term vacation rentals. Yeah, that, that issue of local control is so important, and they hear us talking about it all the time from our from our lobbying team. Of course, the, the legislators hear that, but hearing it from the members to reach out to contact the legislator, that's always a lot more impactful than anything we can do as, as an organization. So thank you, Jen. Um, I, I think I'd like to switch real quick and bring Chris Hackbarth uh, from the league on the call. We did have a, a pretty big uh, news event that we were part of last week um, where we rolled out, talking about coalitions, uh, we rolled out a plan to uh, kind of recommendation to the state on how to spend upwards of $6 billion in the American Rescue Plan Act uh, dollars that the state has. Um, and we came up with a real comprehensive plan uh, to, to on how we think this money should be allocated. So Chris, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. I know John Lamacchia, we should give him and Harrison Richards credit. They really helped uh, put this coalition and did a lot of the behind the scenes work to get, to get it going. And, and we had a press event last week where we rolled out this plan. 
um, that was very well received. We had a lot of media coverage on it. But Chris, talk a little bit about the plan real quick and uh, what it can mean for our members. Sure. Thanks, Matt. And you know, absolutely, I'll just spend a couple of minutes. We obviously know from from some of our discussions at convention um, where look, you know, $4.4 billion for the American Rescue Plan going to local governments looks like a big amount. But once we start uh, parsing those dollars out amongst our 1800 local units, it, it's a very different impact depending on the different communities. And I know one of the discussions we had uh, with Tim Dempsey during our convention general session, uh, his statistic he looked at was 82% of all local governments will be getting less than $500,000. And, you know, almost two thirds uh, we'll be getting less than $250,000. So this is definitely an area of uh, opportunity for our members, but also, you know, context is important. And so being able to leverage those dollars against uh, the six and a half billion that the state has available was really important, uh, really important to us at the league. And what we were looking at and trying to find ways for uh, the state's dollars to be invested in such a way that locals would be able to tap into those. So we uh, sat down earlier this summer uh, with our colleagues at the Township Association and the County Association and had a conversation with the state budget director about, you know, what does uh, transformational investment look like at the state level? Uh, how can the state take its, its funds and invest them in a comprehensive way where we're not uh, siloing the dollars out and turning around in two or three years and going, what did we spend it on? Where'd the money go? Uh, this is an opportunity to really make uh, long-term investments and so we want to make sure we're doing that in a, as effective a way as possible. So uh, we got together and, and decided that this needed to be a much bigger conversation um, to get the legislature's attention, get the governor's attention. And so we set out with our partners at, at MAC and, and MTA, and, and we put together a whole coalition of over 40 individuals and organizations uh, to really look at the, the key, you know, kind of comprehensive spending priorities that the state needs to be focusing its, its six and a half billion dollars on. So we looked at infrastructure, obviously water, sewer, and broadband are direct allocation opportunities under the American Rescue Plan. Uh, so how can the state provide funds for those that locals can tap into? Uh, you know, the uh, local uh, and state fiscal stability and capacity, you know, it's one thing if we spend, uh, you know, $10 billion, $11 billion in the state, but if there's not enough funds at the local level to maintain those, those capital investments, then we've wasted that money, that investment. So, uh, you know, we looked at uh, co uh, community development and housing is a huge issue in Michigan. Um, urban, rural, suburban areas. Uh, we talk about uh, comprehensive economic development, helping our, our small businesses and our downtowns thrive during this difficult period. Uh, and then we talked about local public health and safety and the importance, uh, you know, outside of some of the direct allocations that that other health are getting or, or you know, are going to education, we tried to focus on those areas where there weren't necessarily a direct support through the American Rescue Plan or the CARES Act, and where we could, uh, you know, use our resources as kind of the, the, the hubs for our communities uh, and really make those investments uh, beyond the walls of City Hall. And so we put this uh, this plan together that uh, the that the coalition put forth, uh, and I know you talked about the president. I'm sure there's a, a link to that we can put in the chat, or uh, Betsy can put in the chat. It was a, a really well attended event. I know we've gotten a lot of great press out of it. And our next steps now are to you know work with the legislature and the governor over the next couple of weeks, have this coalition share its vision with uh, with state leaders and, and the governor's office budget leaders, 
And I know we're already starting, uh, those meetings are being scheduled as we speak. So over the next couple of weeks before the legislature starts moving on spending their American Rescue Plan dollars this fall, uh, we wanna have a conversation with them about the right way and the right priorities to spend it on. Yeah, and that coalition it was was very broad-based. We had business leaders and, and like you said, or, uh, organizations such as United Way, associations of United Way uh, was, was there. And I think that was one of the things that media really picked up on this, the broad-based coalition. We had Jared Fleischer from uh, the uh, Rock family uh, of companies uh, on, our, on our committee and our, co our coalition. And that was that got a couple of headlines to have them involved. So it was really good to see such a broad base. And, and that's pretty unusual, uh, I think, a, a lot of to have such a large coalition come together around a single topic. And there were a lot of different areas to, to, to spend this money. And they really were, were focused on what made the most impactful uh, decisions and the most impact overall. Well, and again, getting back to that point of we're not going to have the kind of investments that our residents expect if the state doesn't have their resources made available to our local units. Uh, there's, again, so many where, you know, we're talking to communities who are getting, you know, $25,000 or $100,000. It's very difficult to invest in a, a new water main or to uh, replace a bridge or to, uh, you know, deal with some of the issues that are so important in our communities, uh, expanding broadband, if the state uh, doesn't put their resources on the table uh, that we can have access to. Okay, got a question came in there for you, Chris. Is there any ARPA written or recorded information we can provide to our council who are uh, non-entitlement units uh, to their, and how we can possibly use state monies prior to council spending or committing ARP dollars? So I think they're asking is what's out there to see what's coming so that we don't double double dip on some of that some of that money. Absolutely. And that's this has been one of the biggest themes I know that that MML has talked about over the last few months and our colleagues at MTA and MAC, we are encouraging all of our communities, take your time. You have until 2024 to allocate the dollars and until 2026 to spend them. So you have the time to get the best plan possible and not duplicate efforts. Uh, figure out what the state is gonna put their money towards so that you can tap into those dollars. And, and you know, we've, I've talked to communities you know, who wanna help with, with water, water arrearages water bill arrearages. Well, there's direct state dollars for that. So you might not want to spend your dollars there. Use the money the state has available or the feds are making available for that. Broadband. Yes, we want to expand broadband, but let's see what dollars the state makes available for that. Uh, and you may not have to spend the same amount of money that you were thinking. So and you could spend it on something else in your community. Instead. Exactly. So I know yep. we've got a great program, uh, our Serve My City program, which has been offering uh, various levels of assistance to communities. And Shanna Draheim from our team has been involved in that. Uh, I know that's on our League Foundation page, I believe, Matt, correct? Yeah, and it says, yeah, there's a website, Serve My City. Uh, it's been a couple of couple of weeks. <laughs> so my city, I, we'll put the link in the we'll put the link in the chat. <laughs> so we do offer we do offer a direct service with kind of varying levels of conversation. Is it uh, you know is it technical support you need? Is it something a little more in depth? And we can have a conversation with with your community about what would be helpful. Uh, there's a lot of resources. Uh, National League of Cities has put together a number of resources related to what others what other communities around the country are doing. Uh, I know the uh, ICMA recently did a survey and we were talking about a, an article on that that came out in September uh, in terms of what uh, different communities around the country are looking at doing with their dollars. Uh, you know, there are uh, there is a grant navigator program that National League of Cities is, is standing up 
uh, with a third party vendor that will look at actually using analytics uh, and data to help understand what your community's needs are and how they match up with all the various grants that are out there. Uh, so that's an opportunity we're encouraging all of our members to to engage in uh, because they'll even my understanding, Matt, is they'll even help write grants as we move through the process, correct? Yeah, I believe so. They're, they're, they have a, they have quite a, a bit of support for that program. So definitely sign up for that in addition to our Serve My City program. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, I know we're way over on time. I appreciate everybody that has hung with us. I do want to mention that our next Live with the League is November 1st, Monday at noon. Um, there's a couple other programs coming up. The uh, MAMA, Michigan Association of Municipal Attorneys, has a law program coming up October 21st. And the Michigan Association of Mayors has an institute for, for members of the, those organizations on November 8th, 18th and 19th in Mount Pleasant. And there's numerous, uh, Chris talked about the American Rescue Plan assistance. There's numerous trainings. It's also listed on our website. If you go to mml.org and click on our calendar, there is a bunch of different uh, tra uh, websites and we'll put that in the chat as well, the, all those different education sessions. So thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you, uh, Jen and Chris Johnson and Matt from the Attorney General's office. And of course, Betsy and Kristen working with us behind the scenes. I, I appreciate everybody's help. So that'll conclude the show. Thank you. I'm Matt Bach with The League. Have a good day. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mml.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.